This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, when the United States abruptly pulled out of the 12-country Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, it was a significant debt to its credibility in Asia. The rest, 11 countries, continued with a modified version of the agreement, which came into effect in 2018. And then in 2022 came the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, comprising 15 countries, but not the United States. So where was the United States? The region has been waiting for the U.S. to re-engage with some economic initiative. It finally got something earlier this year when President Joe Biden unveiled the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. And thus far, we have 14 countries in that framework referred to as the IPEF, which, by the way, account for around 40 percent of global GDP. But it is important to understand that the IPEF is not a trade agreement. Apologies for that long-winded introduction, but that is the essential context. The United States has made its move. The IPF is intended to provide an alternative to expanding Chinese economic statecraft and complement security strategy in the Indo-Pacific. It had its first high-level in-person meeting in Los Angeles just a few days ago. And to unpack what the IPF means and how it is seen in the Indo-Pacific, I have joining me today from Bangkok, Professor Pavida Pananon, Professor of International Business, at Tamasat Business School, Tamasat University. Her research interest is global strategic management, particularly with reference to how companies and emerging markets develop and expand overseas. And she is a prolific writer and sought after speaker. And I'm very happy to have her on Asian Insider. So, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me here. And from Beijing, I'm joined by my own colleague, Tan Dongwei, who has been the Straits Times China Bureau Chief since 2018. Dawn, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nama. Ajahn Pavida, may I start with you? Thailand is the second largest economy in Southeast Asia. It is also not just incidentally a major non-NATO ally of the US. And of course, like all of Southeast Asia, it has deep economic and trade relations with China. What is Thailand's view of the IPEF? I think Thailand welcomes this initiative and that is shown by Thailand being one of the first members that attended the launch and the meeting in the Los Angeles. So I think overall we can say that Thailand welcomed the, the agreement and looks forward to seeing what will come next. But I think there are also oppositions in the country for the role of the government in joining this because I think the concern is on the issue of is this something that intends to move Thailand away from China and also to counter the role of China in the economic relations within the Asia-Pacific. So I think there are both pros and cons and that would be my take for this initial period of the discussion. And more broadly, what is the sentiment, would you say, in Southeast Asia on the IPEF, given that it is supposed to balance China's economic footprint and influence across the region? I presume there are diverse issues and concerns, right, across the region? Uh, Yes, but I think the concern would be on the two pillars, the trade pillars, as well as the supply chain resilience pillar. I think on the first pillar, people are concerned because China makes up a large part of the ASEAN intra-regional trade as well as investment. 
So without the role of China in the kind of the regional trade agreement, that would somewhat undermine the impact that it could have. And I think for the second pillar on supply chain resilience, the concern would be on how different countries view the word resilience. I think for the U.S., the idea of resilience emerged after COVID because they are concerned about where their suppliers are located and they do not want everything to be concentrated in China. But that is more the view that is very much a country and uh, security-driven view of resilience. If you look at resilience, I think there are different angles to it. If you look at the firm level, resilience means just adjusting to different kinds of risks. So companies perform different things to meet different kinds of risks. If you look at the industry level of resilience, that could indicate where and how industries are organized. For example, during COVID, people are concerned about PPE or the medical supplies. And one of the industries that has been quite resilient uh, from Southeast Asia is rubber glove. And partly because the companies that export rubber glove could continue to export. And the industry itself is very much concentrated in Southeast Asia. And there are you know, some disruption, but not that much. But the issue on resilience that are being discussed a lot these days, I think is viewed more from the country perspective that look at resilience as a national security. That's why we are hearing the U.S. talk more about reshoring or friendshoring. So I think IPEF is part of the U.S. in looking for opportunity to engage countries in Asia to be part of it kind of the friends to French or some of the economic activities in the region. And that might not be in the interest of everybody the same way. Don, what is Beijing's view of the IPEF? I see China has been rather dismissive. I see commentaries saying the IPEF is just a geopolitical tool. Could you elaborate on China's perspective? Yeah, China sees the IPEF as, of course, in yet another political tool um, in the American toolkit to try and contain it and to counter its dominance in the region. And uh, whatever Washington might say about how the IPEF is not about being a choice between the U.S. and China, Beijing naturally doesn't see it quite that way. The framework doesn't include China nor the countries in Southeast Asia that are economically beholden to China, um, namely Laos and Cambodia, and also Myanmar. But at least it also doesn't include Taiwan, or you know that would draw a much stronger response from China than it has. But unlike other alliances such as the Quad, or especially military alliances like AUKUS, China, at least in its response so far, appears to view the IPEF as less of a threat factor in terms of how it might affect its economic interests um, and its economic ties with the region. China is the largest trading partner of nearly all of the countries that are part of the IPEF. You know, its trade with ASEAN is, is more than double that of the US, and it is firmly entrenched in the economies of the region and has so much to offer all these countries that the U.S. can't or won't. So there is a sense of confidence that the IPEF um, won't hold too much sway with these countries. 
And to counter the IPEF, you know, China has repeatedly reminded these countries that it has the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive um, Economic Partnership, with them, which is a much more favorable, you know, traditional free trade agreement um, that reduces tariffs and uh, grants um, market access. And then there is the Belt and Road Initiative, which, you know, has been building infrastructure and connecting supply chains in the region and beyond for nearly a decade now. But, you know, while Beijing has dismissed the IPEF as a, a geopolitical tool um, that cannot afford what these countries want and that it only serves American interests because the U.S. is the one, you know, setting the standards, China is at the same time not taking anything for granted. And, and we've seen perhaps some anxiety manifest as uh, Chinese leaders have, you know, in the wake of the um, IPEF announcement, quickly assured the region that uh, it is committed to enhancing trade and cooperation and investments with these countries. So it will continue to actively court them, you know, with stronger economic incentives, create greater um, interdependence, and also push harder to um, join the CPTPP and also the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement, which is this digital trade pact um, between Singapore, New Zealand and Chile. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. And just a quick one, going back to decoupling and uh, French shoring, and this is beyond the IPAF, of course, uh, this is going on anyway. How much concern or worry is there in China about this growing effort of the U.S. to decouple, to offshore, to French shore, to reduce dependency on China? Well, yeah, there certainly is a lot of concern. You know, the idea of the U.S. seeking to decouple from China has been um, driven home by the last U.S. administration under Donald Trump. And we've seen, you know, over the past few years, how quickly China has responded to counter that, you know, by ramping up self-sufficiency with its industrial policy in terms of, you know, technological development and innovation, and also insulating its economy, you know, with a, with a new strategy that it calls um, dual circulation uh, that seeks to rely to a large part on domestic consumption to drive the economy. It has on its own terms also tried to decouple itself in some ways, you know, such as ordering its central government agencies and state-owned enterprises to um, swap out foreign brand computers with domestically produced ones, prohibiting its big companies to list in the U.S., beefing up regulation for foreign companies based in China, such as how they handle data. And it views all of this as a matter of national security and also to protect its national interests. So self-sufficiency has really become a clarion call, you know, whether it is developing weapons for its military or ensuring energy and food security, which have become issues of vital importance for the Chinese leadership. You know, a quarter of its food comes from the U.S. It looks at the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. And that perhaps has given China, you know, even greater impetus to diversify sources of imports and um, develop self-reliance. The U.S.-China rivalry is one thing, but the COVID pandemic has essentially um, accelerated this idea of decoupling because countries other than the U.S. have started exploring how to diversify its supply chains. And China's strict zero COVID policy has also forced foreign companies to look at the possibility 
of moving their operations somewhere else. There was, in fact, a new survey that came out just a few days ago by Rodium Group, which showed that European investment in China was becoming more concentrated with a handful of big firms, especially German companies like Volkswagen, BMW and Daimler, dominating. But practically no new European investment has come in directly since the start of the pandemic. It may just be a temporary phenomenon because of the pandemic, but it could also be a longer term trend for a number of reasons, you know, geopolitics, China's COVID management, cost of doing business in China, accusations of human rights violations in Xinjiang, you know, all of this uh, factor into business decisions. And China, of course, understands very well, you know, the benefits of globalization and it understands that it's still uh, very heavily reliant on the U.S. for a swathe of things. And it is banking on the U.S. and Europe and other countries having that same understanding as well that, you know, they too cannot do without China which is why, you know, despite all the tough rhetoric and the sometimes overt display of nationalism and strength, China continues to pursue diplomacy with the U.S. And it's, you know, repeatedly sort of trotting out the same narrative about how, you know, decoupling benefits nobody and will hurt not just, the, you know, China and the U.S., but also, you know, the global economy as well. Mm, very interesting. Ajahn Pavita. I would like you to perhaps comment on that, on because this this sort of economic reducing dependency on external factors, external countries is common to both sides, right? So there is this general sort of decoupling going on. But and the second part of that is all regional group negotiations always start slowly and proceed quite slowly. How do you evaluate the start of the IPEF? What kind of evolution and timeline do you see ahead? And are you optimistic about this new architecture? I think I would like to start first on what Dawn mentioned about decoupling and the resiliency within each country. I think China is not the case that every country can look at China developing its own self-sufficiency because China is also a country that is very rich in its resource and it also has become the kind of the factory of the world. So thinking of becoming more self-sufficient and self-reliant is quite possible for China. And that might not be the case for all other countries in the IPEF region. For example, Southeast Asia has always been a group of countries that has to depend on uh, external markets for its exports, also for its import. So to develop more of self-sufficiency might not be in the best interest of Southeast Asian country. So with the IEPEF not really promising market access into the U.S., that might be one of the areas that kind of dampen the keen interest from countries in Southeast Asia that pretty much export-oriented countries. So I think that would be one of the ideas that again, make countries question what resilience mean and the resilience in the interest of the U.S. Is that the same resilience for other countries? Because if the U.S. view resilience in terms of, yes, climate change and more green technology and uh, data security, yes, it would be in the interest of other countries. But if the U.S. look at resilience as not engaging China, that might harm the economic potential for countries in Southeast Asia. 
So that links to your second part of the question: How do countries view this initiative? I think right now uh, is a very uh, early start, and I think countries are looking at how this would be discussed and how it would beef up the content and how what kind of agreements and mechanism will be laid out. And because it is not a traditional trade free trade agreement, but more like something initiative of the White House, I think perhaps people are also looking at whether this can be really sustained if the administration of uh, Joe Biden is no longer there. Would that mean uh, something like TPP would repeat itself again? So I think people are looking at this with uh, the kind of caution. First, because it might not always offer everything that they want to see, because we have to accept that for intra-regional or for any regional trade agreement, not engaging China would take a big chunk out of their interest for everyone. And second is the commitment from the U.S. side, how they really want to go forward. So I think it depends a lot on those two factors before everyone can move forward. Absolutely fascinating. And you're absolutely right. I think, uh, um, Dawn, any last word from you on that? Yes, it will. It's going to take a while. The IPF is sort of a late entrant, isn't it, into the theater? That's right. And I think China has um, not wasted any time in reminding these countries and also the world about how it was there first um, and, you know, how the U.S. basically betrayed these countries by pulling out of the TPP. Um, And I think it will just continue with that rhetoric. But also, you know, watching what the U.S. does with the IPEF and then making their moves accordingly. Pabila Paranons, Tan Donway, thank you. Thank you. It was great having you both on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nimal. So that nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Nimal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A W E D I O.